Hello, and welcome to This Week in the Ancient Near East, the podcast that takes archaeology exactly as seriously as it deserves. I'm Alex Jaffe, director of the Bob and Ray Institute of Archaeology at the University of Southern North Dakota at Hoople. With me, as always, are two academics from real institutions, Professor J.P. Dessel of the University of Tennessee and Professor Rachel Hallett of the State University of New York at Purchase. We're speaking to you today from in front of a crackling fire at the University Ski Lodge high atop Mount Hoople, southern North Dakota's tallest peak. Today we're talking about a particularly unusual find of what appears to be Neo-Assyrian leather armor in a tomb in northwestern China. This armor, comprised of over 5,000 leather scales laboriously sewn together, has no clear parallels except, well, maybe for one. How does archaeology contend with one-off wonders like this? Does this mean that an actual Assyrian warrior made it all the way to China? Can we rely on art, texts, or science to help us understand the probability of this being even, you know, an actual Assyrian object? Are there other explanations? Maybe just somebody found it in a flea market and thought it was cool. Okay. So here's the lightning round. We'll get straight to it. What is the most exotic thing in your wardrobe? Whoa. Hmm. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay's not <laughs> an answer. I've got a fleece that is really a fleece. It looks like a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> okay. A lot of things look like a sheep, but is it a sheep? It's got it's got sort of, you know, hairy, woolly protrusions all over it okay but oh. I've, got, I've got hairy woolly protrusions all over me doesn't make oh, so where, when did you get this fleece yeah where's uh, it a couple of years back and uh i can't wear it it actually is too hot which is really saying something because i'm always cold um but everybody says oh you have this woolly coat um and I, it's kind of grayish whitish and it's kind of exotic um, yeah yeah interesting and is it made out of real it's acrylic. I mean, come it's on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. And it's made in China. Probably. Very apropos, but um, apropos, absolutely. And it's traveled all the way to the US. So so that's one that's one category of, of exotic. Keep, keep, we want the listener to keep that in mind. <laughs> <laughs> what do I have? Um Come back to me. What do you have, Alex? Because I, I just thought of something and then I forgot it. Oh, my fleece distracted you. I have two things uh, and uh, as counterexamples. One is I have um, some very authentic Hawaiian shirts that I found in a, uh, in a thrift store in Tucson. 50s era, genuine acrylic, um, bright colors, it's like, it's like Don Ho himself walked in there, sold these shirts and, and walked out. Right. But the real, the real ones from the 50, from the late fifties. Yeah. And they have the tags, you know, manufactured in Honolulu. Right. Wow. And the other thing. Hold it. Do they still fit? <laughs> well, they're, yeah. 
Because <laughs> they're billowy. <laughs> they're very billowy. Right. When I fill out to that extent, then I then there's going to be a problem <laughs> getting there. But uh, but the other thing, which actually involves you in a way, uh-uh. that uh, our our mutual student and and friend and colleague, uh, young Creekmore, um, one year many years ago, brought back a complete Turkish peasant's costume for me. Oh, wow. With the, with the baggy pants and that, the vest and the hat and the something else. That's what I was going to say. I have a pair of, in, in Israel, we would call them Drew's pants, but in right. Turkey, they're right. They're just pants. And I have a pair that, that my uh, colleagues at Tainite gave me. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, obviously. You two need to both put these on and pose for a picture. Right, because because everybody needs to see you know something that's eight sizes too small. <laughs> but uh, but it's it's exotic in the sense uh, in, in Turkey, obviously it's not exotic. Right. Well, though I, though increasingly, it, I mean, right. Sure. You see it less and less. But parts of Turkey, it's still pretty right. Every day. There again. But uh, so. So yeah, is but what does it say that that you have one of these and that you have one of those and I've got one of these? What does it say about us? What does it say about the process to which, by which these things got here? And what does it say about us as as people that we <laughs> we we own and maybe even sometimes wear these things? I used to wear my juice pants a lot. In fact, I wore them so much I. They kind of got wore out. They're very comfortable. Yeah, there's a lot of space. Yeah, exactly. There's a lot of space. They're capacious. Well, what yeah. does it say about you that you choose to wear those instead of sweatpants? Uh, well, you know, I I always adhere to the to the Jerry Seinfeld line about you know when George shows up in sweatpants and it's like you just you you've given up. Right. Right. Or would so you go to the Piggly Wiggly wearing these these Turkish pants? Or is it more around the house? Um, oh, it's it's around the house. Okay. I wouldn't I wouldn't wear them out. Okay. What about the hat? I wear my hat. I have my, my little hat, and I wear it all the time. There you go. So yeah. there's there are categories. Well, be, well, I think you know, I I always used to wonder why old older Mediterranean men would always put something on their head, and <laughs> and as I've aged, it's like yeah, of course you want something on your head. Yeah. It's hot. It's too hot out. It's too cold out. Yeah, you either want to cover your head. It's too hot, or it's too cold, or you yeah. just you want something on your head. So I wear my little, I wear my little Turkish hat. There's a lot of wisdom in in older Mediterranean men, at yeah. least on some things. Exactly. Maybe not other things. There's right. all sorts of speculation about what kind of hats they wore in antiquity, but but and, I mean with the brim, maybe <laughs> no brims. I don't think there are any brimmed brimmed hats. From antiquity, they're well, always little floppy. Yeah, but it makes sense to have a brim, like just like now, it makes sense to have a brim. Yeah, Maybe they didn't have, have the technology for brims, mm -hmm. right? They no, they have the technology for armor. I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah. Before we do that, you have to tell us the most exotic thing in your closet, though, JP. I was going to say that my my Drew or my oh. Turkish peasant pants. Mm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's so what you I was going to say. Yourself, that the, you acquired yourself. Well, you were there. Right, I was yes, I was in Turkey, and they were they were given to me. 
Right. right. And so mine, were, mine actually traveled from west, from east to west. So is that a, a stylistic ah. transfer? Is it a technology transfer? It's really all of these things. Right. It's an actual material transfer. Right. Yeah. And yeah. when does it, but of course, nowadays, these kinds of things sort of bump into the whole thing about cultural appropriation. Right. Oh, that's a good point. <laughs> so, but, that, but, but, but that gets into a rather dyspeptic kind of conversation. I, I think we should talk about the armor before we get too dyspeptic. Yeah, let's, let's talk about Assyrian armor. Dyspepsia. Yeah. <laughs> we, we travel away from the land of dyspepsia. <laughs> it's far to the east. <laughs> to, the, to a tomb at uh, Yanghai in, right. in northwest China. Does someone want to introduce the topic in general? Okay, I will, since that, <laughs> that's often what I do. Um, so there was an excavation of a cemetery in Yanghai in Western China in, I believe, 2013. And um, it's, it's a cemetery and in one tomb of a 30-year-old male, they found leather scale armor. It was, um, it was not on him, he was on some sort of a platform and the armor was more or less under the platform, but it was clearly buried with him. And um, an analysis of, of the type of armor, uh, very detailed analysis, uh, found similarities that we will discuss whether we agree that these are real similarities with Assyrian armor. Um, and uh, that led to a, discussion right, about so what's the date oh what's the i didn't say that it's no. uh it's been dated to between the 8th century bc and the 6th century bc by, uh by, by carbon 14 dating right so right. you know it's <laughs> that's the good right. kind of dating right and also stylistically with other that is other things in the tomb um the that. local things in the, tomb. the local things in the tomb right which we can't speak to because i don't think any of us are experts in this the archaeology oh, okay. of the world. Experts. I have been to Turfan. You have been? I've been to Turfan. Oh, very cool. Okay. Yeah. What's it okay. like? It's really, really hot and dry. Okay. <laughs> so you would need a hat maybe with a brim? <laughs> One would definitely want a hat with a brim. Uh, but would you yeah. want leather armor? I, I, if I did have leather armor, I would definitely want the lightweight leather armor that was found in the tomb as opposed to the heavyweight leather armor that was that is on display at the at the met in new york uh -huh. city to which this this chinese example was compared right by the by the scholars well i i want to mention one thing for for our listener and that is that um, this leather armor has scales that are sewn together <clears throat> and the the archaeologists recovered 5,544 <laughs> small scales and right. 140 large scales. Right. And they estimate that this leather armor thing wore, uh, weighed between five, four and five kilos. Right. So about 11, 12 pounds. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, puts light weight into a kind of different category. Right. Right. Well, that, yeah. But imagine heavyweight. I it's mean, not linen. 
obviously. <laughs> <laughs> it's not nearly as forgiving as linen. That's right. <laughs> For those of you who are keeping track. <laughs> but, uh, wow, I mean, but the, the poor schmuck who had to sew all this stuff together. Well, there's, yes. there's that. I also want to mention that, like, one of the reasons this has been getting a lot of attention in the media is because of these East-West connections, which is something we're going to talk about. But, uh, but you know, it's so unusual, we could say, to find um, something that might, that has been postulated to originate in Assyria, part of the ancient Near East, in China. Um, so that's, that's been discussed. So we'll discuss that, too. <laughs> there's a lot to discuss here. There's a lot to unpack. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's the whole methodology of this comparison. Right. Uh, because the only armor found in this cemetery, and I think the cemetery had what, 520 graves? Something yeah, on that so, order. Uh, like they, they excavated something like 54,000 square meters or something. Right. So that's what, ginormous. 54 hectare, right? Yeah. So it covered an area of 54 hectare. And they excavated and they found 520 graves and only tombs and only one had armor in it. Right. Had this leather armor. And the only parallel to it was a unprevenienced, similarly dated piece of leather or, or entire leather armor at the Met. That and is the Metropolitan Museum of New York, just, just in case our listeners right. didn't know On that. Fifth right. Avenue. Right. <laughs> open, not not open on Mondays, I believe. <laughs> and there are lots of technological similarities between these two sets of armor. And, and I think that the, the, the technological similarities, along with the rough dating similarities, are enough to suggest that they are analogous. But of course, one is unprevenienced. Right. So I'm still while we have depictions of Neo-Assyrians in armor from reliefs, I'm still a little bit curious as to why they think this is Neo-Assyrian. Right, right, that's a very good question. And the MET website itself, first of all, in terms of, of dating, the MET website says eighth through third century BC. Yeah. So that's a wide range. A and, wider range, correct? Yeah. And it, it's in terms of provenance. There is no provenance, as you said, but it's the Met speculates Subexi or Scythian um, as the two possibilities, neither of which I should point out is Assyrian. Right, yeah. exactly. Both of which are sort of Central Asian. Right. Um, even though the Scythians do ultimately make an appearance in the Near East. Right. So, so I think. So, so methodologically, there's a real interesting issue. One is, is that, you know, the old adage in archaeology, you, you find what you look for. And clearly the excavators um, or the researchers on this wanted to enter into this discussion of sort of, you know, the movement of technology from east to west across Eurasia. Right. Um, in this case, from west to east. So clearly that was on their mind as they're excavating out in Turfan. Um, there's probably a lot of reasons why that's on their mind out in Turfan, some good, some bad. Um, and then they find this, you know, very unusual find. And the only analog is, you know, this very other very unusual find. And, and, they, and they are interested in East-West connections in the first millennium from Western China into the Near East. Right. So, so methodologically, that's very interesting. But, um, uh, and then of course, 
they do an incredible technological study, right? So this yeah, technological really study is, is just beautiful, replete with beautiful illustrations and incredible photographs, just wonderful. And the technological study, you know, leads to a conclusion that, yeah, they're, they're kind of similar, A, and B, that this example from, from, this, from the, the Turfon Cemetery from uh, Yanghai is different from stuff found to the east in China from sort of later periods. You know, it's made in a sort of different fashion and it's of a different size. Right. So, you know, it's an interesting question. Even if they, even if the question doesn't really work, um, it is an interesting question. The movement of ideas and technology east to west, west to east, across Eurasia in the first millennium. Well, so here's my question about your question. Um, <laughs> and maybe it's something that I, that I missed in this, uh, as you say, very comprehensive and detailed piece. The, the armor itself, the scales are made of leather. Cow rich, leather. Rich Corinthian leather. Uh, <laughs> and was so, that, Ricardo Monteblon? Monteblon, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> very good. Well, uh, what, what car was he selling when he came up with that? Uh, Volare? <laughs> Vol that's it. Okay. <laughs> yes. Wow. Nice one, Rachel. Thank you. <laughs> okay. No, we, it's okay. The Chrysler, Chrysler Cordoba. Oh, Cordoba. Really? Chrysler Cordoba. Okay. All right. Okay. Oh, well. Oh, well. Now I don't remember. No, my question. The oh. question was, it's made of leather. Um, did they do any DNA analysis on this leather? They, they didn't. And, and they actually... Yeah. Maybe okay. it's in they the work. They didn't work. do any DNA analysis. And the carbon-14 dating actually was from a thorn that was Stuck embedded in deeply right. in the leather. They went out of their way to keep talking about how deeply embedded the thorn was. Right, um, right. And of course, that makes sense that they used a short-lived sample instead of a long-lived sample because armor presumably- <laughs> Well, how long, is, how long lived would, would, the, would the cow itself have been? But, well, uh, look, I mean, you know, baseball mitts get handed down from father to son to true. daughter to father that's to true. daughter to mother. So, you know, armor can, yeah, I would can, say that a nice, a good piece of leather armor could have lasted, you know, Easily, yeah. I wonder how long what oh, the oldest so piece of leather is in in this house. So, <clears throat> okay, kids out there in, in Radio Land, go find the oldest piece of leather in your house and <laughs> report back to us next week. Anyway, but I think you know this is an interesting question mm -hmm. about that that could, um, and I'm sure these guys, you know, the, these archaeologists are very are very clever and scientific. So maybe they're working on it right now with their with, with their own boffins and tricorders. But right. The, right. the question is, to me, is, is this thing, this object manufactured in Assyria, writ grand, and then it moved from west to east, thousands of kilometers with a long, complicated story? Is it a, a technology, which is to say an idea um, with a specific series of, of formal attributes on how you sew little leather things together that moved from west to east mm -hmm. um 
I bet it's not a technology only because uh, there probably are very, very, very few cows in the Turfan Basin. Oh. Because it's, it's a desert, right? Uh-huh. And Turfan itself is an oasis town in the middle of this big desert. But oasis towns do not usually have, you know, <laughs> lots, of, lots of herd animals. That's an um, interesting point. Right. But, but of course, okay. the rest of Eurasia is right. made with cows. Of herd animals. Right. That's so, the thing. It doesn't have to come from Assyria. Right. A cow, a cow, it could, cow, it could come from. It could come from outside of Turfan itself. Turfan being some yeah. kind of, you know, core area or something. Of course, it's a cemetery. So all this stuff could have been, was brought there anyway. Right. That's a good point, too. But, but, yeah. but if we say, okay, this is a, it's a technology, it's an idea, it's a template, it's a series of formal attributes <laughs> we need we, we need one more cinnamon to make it in five <laughs> yeah I, I was rolling there for a second um how are you how are you gonna how is that gonna move without like moving inside a person's head <laughs> which is to say are we talking no, are we talking about a craftsperson an actual yeah. manufacturer who has all of this knowledge, who's who's moving, as opposed to, you know, a, some sort of IKEA-like diagram where, you know, where you fold it out and you, you know, next well, step, that, okay. sew the five thousand pieces together. I think, right. I think so, you see it. Somebody sees it and says, "Huh, that's a cool idea." They learn the technology. Um, and make some, and then somebody else sees what they, it's kind of down the line movement of knowledge. I don't think well, it's- Maybe. Well, for, okay, so- How do you know? So the, this diffusion- know. The, How the diffusion <laughs> takes place is an interesting question, but we're really in a kind of a problematic area because <laughs> this is a single- One-off. One-off found in a huge cemetery, right? So. If it was a diffusion of an idea, you would have had, you would expect that there would be other you know examples, right? That's true. Um, yes. it's, a, it's a really big site with a lot of tombs in it, or at least yeah. burials in it, and also there's all of China, <laughs> and nothing like <laughs> it has been found in all of China. And there's a lot of archaeology done in China that from comes. you know the Neolithic on forward. So the fact that there are no analogs is one thing, in a very vast area, not just China. There are no analogs in Eurasia except mm-hmm. for this one example at the Met. The second thing is, in terms of talking about and thinking about diffusion of ideas, it's in a cemetery. And that's a really bad context to try to parse out these kinds of things, whether, it's a, whether it got there through trade or you know, it was an individual or it was this or it was that. Because you know, burials are, are always kind of- you Repositories know, for stuff. Yeah, repositories cool for stuff, stuff and, and junk and exactly. But you can, yeah, you know what? Slow down, boys. Um, cemeteries, <laughs> Ooh. cemeteries um, are really very, very useful in other ways because you know that if they're burying something in a tomb, it's something precious. And yeah, you don't know where it came from, and you don't know if it's in something that's been passed down for generations. But you do know that this was a prized possession because. The thing about cemeteries, as I've been saying for 20 years, I don't know if anybody, 30 years, if anybody's been listening, is, is that this is how, this is how um, people want to. There. Yeah. What? A little, 
got a little edge on there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is how people want to be portrayed. This is how the society is portraying sure. itself on purpose, right. as opposed to like a house collapsing and you run away and you no, leave no, your no. stuff. There. I never, so, I completely <laughs> agree that, uh, totally agree with that, but that still doesn't yeah. speak to the issue of the manufacture of this stuff. In fact, it makes the point. It's precious stuff. And, right. and so how the stuff gets there is very idiosyncratic, you know. I just don't want you guys dissing on cemeteries. Oh, I'm not dissing at all. I'm just saying it's it's easy to get at the notion of valuation and, you know, but it's hard to get at the issue of the transference of- Right, the process. Of information process, right. Yeah. So- And and if if there had been more than one of these things, then you could talk about some of the, the systemic features that, oh, you know, maybe there's a case for migrating um, craftsmen or something. And they, they went around and, and did this. Right. Itinerant craftsmen. That's a very common idea. That, <laughs> very, you know, popular, very popular very popular excuse to explain, you know, objects Anything. that are, are, are turn up in right. some kind of yeah. quantities. Right. But I want to come back to, before we go further, and I want to go further, but I want to come back to the fact that- <laughs> We always really... go back. And yet we're going further. <laughs> archaeologists, we always go back. That's go right. Back. <laughs> yes. Um, we don't know that this is Assyrian. I mean, I'm right. not sure that the speculation, you know, we, we need to, we started to unpack that part, but we didn't continue to unpack it. Because once we say that the Met material, the, the Met example is not necessarily Assyrian, and I don't see any reason to think that it is Assyrian. We didn't even get into the looking at armor on Assyrian reliefs issue yet, because the armor depicted on Assyrian reliefs, it's been pointed out that it is not the same as this. So we're we're kind of starting with a a false premise that this is Assyrian. We should still talk about um, transnational trade, but we can't just, you know, go with the, we we can't let our listener think. Because when you assume... (laughs) <laughs> and I don't have to spell it out in a fr- family-friendly podcast. Um, yeah, well, that's reasonable. Again, it's it's all, uh, you know, I don't want to be dissing on this very nice object in, in the Met that nobody knows where it comes from either. But, you know, there, there's, you can only work with what you got. And you can only, there are limits as to what you can infer from from reliefs and then go from reliefs to objects and then go from objects to other objects and and so on so let me like i said there's a lot there's so much to unpack here so yes reliefs figure prominently we have these neo-syrian reliefs in which we get lots of depictions of various and sundry um you know individuals in the assyrian army and light um, infantrymen, heavy infantrymen. Right, light cream, heavy cream, half and half. We get all of that. And we get these depictions of, you know, soldiers wearing some kind of armor. And there's the suggestion that, you know, there's a correspondence. So this to me raises a big issue, uh, which is, and okay, let me just fill this out, flesh this out a little bit more. The the authors of the article say that there's a great deal of standardization in the production of these scales. And the evidence completely points that out. And then they go on to say that the only armor, that the only army in sort of this time period in the ninth century down to the seventh century that was capable of such a high degree of standardization and had an army that was so 
organized and so professionally outfitted were the Neo-Assyrians. And so this must all be Neo-Assyrian. They're the only ones capable of producing this. And this is what I wanna get to. Mm -hmm. We have depictions of the Assyrian army and we have lots of written descriptions of the Assyrian army. And of course, all of these reliefs and all of these texts are, you know, in some way, shape or form, royal propaganda for the Neo-Assyrian kings. I right. mean, most ancient texts are, are propaganda for somebody and usually an elite. Okay, so the Neo-Assyrians, the Assyrians in the first millennium wanna depict their army, their primary institution in the most glorified way possible. And they were vastly successful, right? They fashion, they craft this huge empire that you know, incorporates all of the ancient Near East, uh, includes Egypt at, at different times. And they have these reliefs in which they have all of these soldiers dressed the same and working together in these very rigid ways. We know all of that. What I want to know is, did they really all dress alike? Is that really how it works? Because we can go through lots of historical examples in which we have really pretty good ideas that for a very long time, armies, you know, when, when an army was raised, individuals sort of, you know, brought stuff from home. Even if it was a regular army, even if we're talking about, you know, 13th and 14th and 15th century France and England, sort of the early forerunners of the nation state, that, that people brought their own stuff. Maybe they were outfitted when they got to, you know, wherever they were marching to, they were given, you know, arch, you know, so they were given, you know, standard weaponry. Do we really believe the Assyrian propaganda that they were hosting this well, incredibly well-organized army where everybody was dressed officially? They had an actual kit and, you know, that they, that they were marching around like this? Right. Now, that's a very good question, because um, what we're seeing on the reliefs is consistent, right? The reliefs are consistent with the reliefs, but that doesn't mean that the foot soldiers or the, the cavalry is, is wearing anything standard. That's a very important point. Exactly, and I would say the same thing about the Egyptian army, which is portrayed in the same way. Yes, right. they're portrayed that way, and yes, they crafted a mighty empire in the, you know, in, in, the, in the late Bronze Age. There's no doubt about that. But were they all marching in phalanxes wearing the same exact things with the same exact bows or the same right. exact, you know, I, I don't know. I think that- Especially especially when you're adding mercenaries into your, into your army, because they're definitely going to come with their own stuff. One would think, or at, at the very <laughs> least, yes, all the archers will receive a bow and arrows that are being produced. All the chariots are being produced, all the lance, <laughs> but- they're showing up. What are they showing? Are they really showing up all wearing armor? That would be a huge expense. Well, here, right. here I, would, I would point to not simply the, uh, the evidence of reliefs, which is, which as you suggest, is all you know, visual art, which is royal propaganda in some way, but I would point to administrative texts. So, yes. <laughs> let me let, <laughs> let me read an administrative text from the way it's an No, um, this is actually from Nuzi from the 15th and 14th century, where 
16 types of armor can be reconstructed. The Shariam Mashki, the leather armor, the Shariam Shamashki, armor made of leather scales, the Kurshimetu Shashipari X Kurshimetu Shamashki, armor made I notice of you're using the Allah <laughs> I know. version of that. My, my, my pronunciation is, you know, all uh, native Newsians will have to forgive me. Leather armor, leather body armor with bronze sleeves, body armor made of leather scales with bronze scales on the sleeves, leather body armor with bronze sleeves and four kalkus made of leather, which means armor plates on the waist, which is a good place for them, mm -hmm. and so on and so on and so on. And these are administrative texts. Um, they're not propagandistic, they're logistical, um, they're, they're logistical records of items being provisioned to various <laughs> units, levels of soldiers, and so on and so forth. So and it's real. Point, it's so what's, real. Oh, okay, so is it real? They are identifying things that they know. No, they're, they're identifying things that they know that they're issuing. These are, these are you know, the, things that they're giving out. Is this a Bronze Age text? Yeah, yeah this is busy, yeah. so it's 15th century. No, right. but, but they're provisioning X number of people. I, I still think that there's probably a lot more variability than they're identifying. Firstly, again, I will say, I, I, okay, they're identifying stuff that they know. These are bureaucrats and these are scribes of bureaucrats. Yeah. And they might not be, you know, on the scene. They might be sort of extrapolating standard kinds of issues. But I think there's probably a lot more re real variability on the ground than right. Look, you know, in these texts. Any, yeah. any military you know, has, has immense kinds of records of all the stuff that they're supposed to be issuing to, to soldiers. And by the time the soldiers actually get the stuff, it's, it's, not, it's not what's on the list necessarily. Right, or the list provisions 200 soldiers, but there's 500 actually. Right, but so, my only point in this is that it's real in the sense that yes, there were ancient Near Eastern Assyrian military units that had leather armor, that had right. variations on yeah. leather armor with metal, this kind of metal, that kind yeah, of metal. Yeah, 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 right. That's, okay. that's and, accurate, right. But, right. but that still so doesn't- that, It still doesn't speak to the fact that there are only two examples of this particular style in the entire in entire Eurasia over a millennium. Right. right. Okay. Yeah. So, so I think I think there's probably a lot of variability out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's it's a really interesting list, and you pronounced it so so skillfully too. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but it's, I have tapes. It, it was making, I've been practicing with tapes. <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> it's been making me think of a couple of things. So first of all, um, there could be, I think like you we were both saying, there could be standard issue either for some people or for some objects. But like, the, so I started to think about professional baseball as you were reading your list. So everybody gets their own uniform issued by, by the team or by the organization, but everybody wants their own mitt, right? Everybody's comfortable with their nice broken in mitt. So I think there's something to be said, you know, you want your own armor that's going to fit you right. That right, is not the too team, heavy. The team you. issues you the, the mitt. You can choose what mitt you want. Mm, no, the team doesn't issue you the mitt. 
No? Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> he might pay for the mitt. Okay. And nowadays, of course, everything is bespoke and it, it, they get them gratis, both their mitts and their, and their shoes. Shoes. Their and the shoes right. are a big, yeah. uh, a huge business. Right. So I'm not sure about that. One of the points they made about this particular armor was it was one size fits all and it was standardized and it was easy to chunk out lots and lots of them. But again, these are all lots and lots of, um, uh, you know, they're, they're spinning a huge interpretation out of one or in this case, in, right. one out of yeah. two, uh, out of two uh, artifacts. So this guy could have picked up this object <clears throat> at a flea market in Afghanistan somewhere <laughs> and, and just said, hey, oh, this, this, is, this is really cool. Or, or it could have come, it could have actually come from Assyria or Scythia or wherever and right. just made its way. But in the context in which it was used or consumed, it was totally unique because um, nobody else in this cemetery of 500 people had one. Right. And so this one dead guy who may or may not have been a warrior had a really great send off. Right. And he, and he looked really cool going into the next world or wherever. Right. 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 So does anyone want to make an argument that these two uh, examples of leather armor are indeed close to what we see in the uh, reliefs because a, a lot of, a lot of the argument is based on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, it's really interesting because I'd never looked that closely at the armor in the Assyrian reliefs before reading all this. Um, they're like all Assyrian images; they're very detailed, um, but they're not identical, right? And I read this somewhere that. Um, that the um, Assyrian armor um, ends at the waist and this goes down to the legs. Right, there's a, there's a whole detailed critique that, that yeah. we saw saying, well, it's, it's sort of like it, but it's not really like it. And there are other yeah. things that you could compare it to because of the way it's worn, the way it's wrapped, the way it's tied. And, <clears throat> and in any case, it's still, a one-off and you can't really use the the Metropolitan Museum example as a comparison because you don't yeah. know where it's it's from you but, know where it's from. but the, the the bottom line is that we just we know virtually nothing about um these perishable these whole perishable objects items um that are made of of things like leather things like wood hats with <laughs> You know, woven hats with brims that wouldn't because the brims wouldn't be preserved. So there's a whole there are whole categories of materials that are common and uncommon, but in in antiquity that we know nothing about. That and we can knock right. our heads against the wall looking at the reliefs and trying to you know figure out what's really being depicted. And we can look at all the different categories that are being described in the text, but we just don't have them right. except. In Tiny, tiny examples from a tomb uh, or a desert or something here and there. Right. Oh, like, like linen, for example. Invisible exports and imports. Right. And then we can, you know, but knowing that they're there, we can, we can go to town and make up whatever we want. There's another angle I want to address, yeah. which is this whole notion of east-west or just traffic across Eurasia in the first millennium. And, and I actually was a little surprised that 
this was something that needed to be demonstrated or talked about because traffic across Eurasia in both directions is, is a very well-known thing going back to the fourth millennium. Right. Right? I mean, you know, there's Guns, Germs, and Steel, you know, right. very, very popular book. Lots of problems with it. We're, that's not the issue. But it demonstrates the flow of the transfer of technology right. um, yeah. across Eurasia, beginning yeah. in the fourth millennium. And there's no reason to think it didn't continue. We have, right. you know, lapis showing up as early as what the early uh, in the Near East, uh, in the, certainly in the fourth millennium. I don't know if there's any examples in the fifth. I can't think of any off the top well, of my head. Well, you look at something like carnelian, which goes right, back but, to but the Right, but lapis, we know where lapis is from. Right. And we know yeah. it's circulating all over the pl uh, place across Eurasia. In big chunks. Right. Pounds and um, kilos of it. Right, in, yeah. in, but both going, you know, east and west of Badakhshan. Right. So we know that stuff is circulating, and I, I don't think there's any reason to think that that circulation of goods and technology from the fourth millennium and the third millennium and the second millennium was interrupted in the first millennium. Is, is there any reason yeah. to think that? No, yeah. I would think that no, it, it probably increased. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. And, and there's ebbs and flows of uh, during different you know, epochs for political, right. social reasons and different materials, you know, ebb and flow as well. And, uh, but I think the, you know, one, one of the things is, is that we get surprised when we find things that <laughs> we, we knew that they were there, but then, but we hadn't seen before really. And, and then we try and create a backstory for them. Right, and, and that creates an element of surprise that is right. surprising, but well, it, we, right. we shouldn't be surprised. Right, and we talked about we started talking about that very early on when we had the soap, like oh, there's soap, you know. It's like yes, <laughs> just ancient people had soap, ancient people, you know, manufactured soap, or that wasn't even so ancient, right? It was it was medieval soap. That was medieval. We encourage our listener and possibly other <laughs> listeners to go back to our very first podcast from almost a year ago. If you've listened to if you've listened to it once, imagine what you get <laughs> listening a second and third time. After this particular, <clears throat> but we know um, about the movements of Indo-Europeans uh, in in multiple directions from the Pontic-Caspian steppes. We know about the domestication of horse and the movement of domesticated horses from right. you know along with those Indo-European. Migrations in, in a right. variety of directions. And all sorts of crops. And also, right, the whole And, and other kinds of plants, you know, lemons and citrus going. And cotton. And right? cotton. And chicken. Right. You know that cotton and chickens are probably coming from South Asia and they're percolating and, you know, they're moving north and then east and west. And, right. and cotton, actually, there's actually a fragment of cotton in a, in a, a I think it's PPNB, pre-pottery Neolithic B to our listener context in Jordan. Um, so super early on, this mm -hmm. weird exotic material is, is moving. And then it became, you know, right. Just a, yeah. a material. Uh, right. right. And everyone, ultimately there was a, a transfer of technology. So this, this is, this is, by the way, why, why like cultural appropriation conversations always uh, end up in a stalemate because, because, <laughs> you know, everything, 
everything right. is cultural appropriation, but yeah, right. anyway. But that, let's not, I don't think we should digress into that. Right. All right, you're right. Because that, that's a very modern, I think that's a very modern dilemma or argument. And yeah. it, right. no, nobody at uh, Young High was going, hey, you can't wear that, man. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> so, so I, I guess, though it's I a, guess that there's a, a certain, surprise that's surprising once again. Right. Or maybe we have assumed that there's a lot of um, uh, connections between the Near East and or within Eurasia but we know that very well from the fourth and the third millennia. And, and maybe those connections need to be, you know, sort of reestablished for the first millennium, or at least the first half of the first millennium. I, I, that I don't, I don't mm -hmm. know uh, so well. Um, mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, we have the Silk Road emerging, yeah. you know, a little bit later. So we know that and right, not and, even all that much later. Not even all that much later. And so we know that whenever we have something, you know, fully crystallized, like the Silk Road um, and all of the, that, what that implies, that there were certainly contacts predating that. So between, you know, yeah, second yeah. millennium contacts across Eurasia, certainly third millennium, maybe second millennium, and the Silk Road filling in the gap, I don't think is that challenging or that unanticipated or unexpected. Mind the gap. <laughs> well, there are no gaps, really. The, 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 some of these gaps are just an artifact of our not being able to find perishable things. Right. That, that move. Or records right? of perishable things. Right. Mm -hmm. um, right. And, and certainly as more genetic evidence is being extrapolated and extracted from the tetris bones of of people, we're seeing that people are moving hither and yon more in some periods, right. less than other periods. Um, but that's how people got <laughs> to all these places in the first place, obviously. Right, right. And, you know, it's, uh, but maybe we, what we need to do is rethink our, our notions of all these cultural areas to begin with and, and zoom out, broaden the frame. And- It's a uh, lot of zooming. That's a lot of zooming out though. <laughs> <laughs> We got to zoom, 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 a zoom. <laughs> Come on, give it a try. <laughs> um, um, well, yeah, but I, I think we also have to zoom out in terms of what, what we think. So one thing, um, I guess I'm changing the conversation a little bit. We haven't hard. really discussed um, leather versus metal armor. And I think everybody's initial concept of armor, well, look, look at the Metropolitan Museum. You know, it's the arms and armor room with all this European medieval metal mail. And that's what we tend to think about when we think of armor. So I think leather is, you know, we, we don't think about it as easily. So maybe we should, that's very, maybe we need to zoom right. out. But East also- Asian world, their armor right, there's is, lacquer. Is, is, is leather, it's lacquered wood, it's, it's- right. And, and armor in, okay. in every period, at least elite armor, is as much a display item. I was just going to say, yeah. As it is, uh, yeah. and that follows the canon of whatever the, the local regional sort of styles are. Right. Now that's, and that would have made very... this guy stand out even more, probably, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but what would you Whoa, rather be? <laughs> <laughs> say what? Would you rather be wearing metal or leather on a battlefield? Because you know I can think of arguments for both. Um, metal protects you better, but it's so darn heavy. 
I don't think I could handle that. And it's so. much less flexible if you're in a chariot, if Ooh. you're in, or rather if you're in cavalry, you want something, you need something flexible. Right. Right. That's true. I hadn't thought of the flexibility issue. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I guess leather is, is, has its advantages. Um, Nothing you know, breathes like leather. <laughs> Just ask a cow. <laughs> they wear nothing but <laughs> inside and out so <laughs> yeah well you know and, and then okay so can i just go off um, this my tangent yeah so there are two things that i think of in terms of texts when i think about armor and one is the iliad and you know achilles Hephaestus making achilles new armor and especially his his um, shield, but you know, that's a big celebration, literary celebration of armor right there. But then the other thing I think of um, is um, when David fights Goliath, um, Saul, King Saul um, offers David his armor and he fits him in his own helmet and maybe greaves and definitely male. And David being ungrateful says basically, um, I've never tried this, it doesn't fit me, it's too heavy. I think he only says it in one line, but that's his basic gist. And he takes it off, and that's when he picks up the the sling stones. Um, and uh, so, so I, there's a lot to unpack in there. You know, rejecting the king's armor and all this kind of crap. But uh, but basically, the armor, the the mail itself is too heavy for David. And um, yeah, I just thought I'd say that. No, I think that's a good point. I mean, you know, armor armor um, is a special thing, and and. And that's why I have a hard time thinking about, you know, this idea of standardization and punching out thousands of suits of armor to, you know, outfit the Neo-Assyrian army. Um, yeah. It's not for everybody. Yeah, it's not for everybody. It's not, even though this thing appears to be one size fits all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we would never contradict ourselves. Duh. Well, armor works at, at different levels. It's functional, but it's also symbolic. Right. And, yes. and you can look really cool when you're out there in some kind of, you know, Iron Man costume. But um, there's yeah. another good one, Iron Man. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. I, I, I can see the lawyers from, from the Marvel, Marvel right. Corporation actually getting out of the car now. <laughs> the cease and desist order but uh yeah well would you wear it i guess that's the i guess that's the bottom line would you wear something like that if you had it to? is a you know looking at the met exemplar it, it's a snappy look yeah that's true but man uh, it's yeah. even not, even leather armor in the in the near east oof. the smell I mean, that's right <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, it's. I guess there's a. I guess there's an old spice commercial to be made here, but uh, now I see their lawyers stopping in front of the house. But um, yeah, it's a special thing, armor. It's not yeah. for every day, not for everyone. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I if somebody forced me out into the battlefield, which I can't imagine ever <laughs> happening. I would I definitely rather be ever, anyone ever forcing you into a battlefield, Rachel. Right. <laughs> and that's a good thing, right? But but yes. if that oh, absolutely. Me, right. I would definitely want to be wearing armor rather than not wearing armor. I mean, well, you know, for if it's light enough so that you could turn around and run away. Uh, right. 
And well, believe me, as true. you're running, I'd be unsnapping and un right. and getting that thing off of me so I could run much faster. Right. Right. That's a good point. And and somewhere in the article, it was pointing out that this goes on fairly easily. Am I remembering that right? Yes. Yeah. One person, you can put it on yourself. Right. Presumably. Yeah. Which I guess is important if you need to take it off in a hurry too. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. As opposed to, um, let's say, you know, European armor, right. those, the big uh, metal pants and stuff where you need a yeah. whole team of, it's like a spacesuit. You need squires. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> to lower yeah. you into your, into your pants. Right. So, well, so do, do we want to sum up uh, our feelings about about this find and about the the problem? It's cool. It's cool. Yeah. Find, finding uh, unique artifacts is always problematic. Right. You you really it, it sounds like a good idea, but you really want to find stuff that ties into lots and lots of other stuff so you can figure out a pattern. And and yeah. on that point, uh, they didn't mention any any swords or any other kind of uh, equipment that would would have been part of this package that that was indicative of of this guy yeah. or where he's right. from. Just just the fact that there was some, you know, horse fittings that suggest that he might oh, have been a, a horseman. That's but. right. That's right. It's also but, interesting. But it wasn't. That, it was pretty paltry. You're right. There. Yeah. You're. You're right. If they bought, right? Why are there? Why are there no? Of course, tombs get or burials get robbed, and any metal artifacts would have been taken first. So, yeah, that's also true. But but this was this looked pretty intact in terms of you know right. not scattered. And all, the other thing is is um, he wasn't buried wearing it, which is also interesting. That he's is not that's a good point. Yeah, he's not a warrior buried. So in maybe his it's not even body. his. Maybe it was like, you know, his his brother got this at a yeah, family, story and said, family. Yeah, all sorts of um, interpretive possibilities when you have only mm -hmm. one of something. Exactly. Yeah, and they're yeah. all very. They're all highly speculative. Right, but right. that's the fun part. Right, that's I guess. And if yes. it's not going to be fun. <laughs> we, we, <laughs> we're not going to be there you're not going to hear about it on this podcast that's for sure exactly. that's a good note to close on probably so. all right <laughs> sort of ad, an admonition or something well if nothing else this goes to show that clothes really do make the man or possibly that you really can take it with you anyway in the meantime we'd like to thank eras Dessel, educator in residence at the savannah music festival for our theme music We'd also like to thank our sponsor, the Fister and Vogel Tanning Company of Milwaukee, Wisconsin's largest tannery. To get in touch, leave us a comment, or send us an email at thisweekintheancientneareast, it's all one word, at gmail.com, or send us a postcard at P.O. Box 1177, Boston, Mass., 02134.